0: So let's finish out with your last patient, the 48-year-old lady. Sure. So this is another wonderful patient who presented in 2004. It was hard to figure out, but she had some mucosal lesion either in the vagina or anal rectal area. It was kind of noted, not much done with it, had a elective hysterectomy a few months later, not related to that at all. And finally, in 2007, had this lesion removed turned out it was removed but she was never referred to an oncologist and it was a gist that showed actually eight to ten mitosis per high power field didn't really have a good size because it didn't have good margins anyway fast forward three years later went to her exam and she was found to really have this very large mass in the rectovaginal vault extending into the rectum and biopsied this, and this was just with very high-grade features. So this is now 2011. So actually, it had greater than 10 per high-powerful. power It's even worse than the 2007 biopsy. So anyway, she was started on imatinib. She tolerated it well. She had a PET scan, which showed this very large mass, and within six to eight weeks, the size of the tumor and the pet activity in sensitive diseases was much, much less, and she had a combined surgical resection of this mass with our GYN oncologist and colorectal surgeons. And she essentially had sort of an APR with extended vaginal excision, had a colostomy in place, has a permanent colostomy, and has been on imatinib now since 2011 kind of nearing her three-year mark she feels good she looks good she's gained weight because of her dietary changes that she's had to do with her medications but she's very 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 knowledgeable very active very active in both the ostomy support groups as well as the gist support groups very dynamic young woman So,
1: Johanna, any thoughts about this case?
2: Uh, Very interesting case. Hearing her entire history, I keep wondering if this was originally a rectal primary that was symptomatic initially in the vagina. But regardless, it was an ex-gastric gist with a very high mitotic rate, required neoadjuvant imatinib. At that point, they didn't have exon testing, so she was treated with 400 milligrams and actually had a wonderful response to 400 milligrams a day of imatinib, went for her surgical resection, and so she's a high-risk GIST patient. Now here's the question, what do you do for adjuvant therapy? And so we had a very nice discussion with the patient because she was very well-read and very well-versed about where the data sits for adjuvant therapy for gastrointestinal stromal tumors. And certainly the Scandinavian study of high-risk gastrointestinal stromal tumors really showed us an improvement in overall survival, giving three versus one year of imatinib for patients with high-risk GIST. There's still a little bit of controversy. We do have that EORTC study that looked at two years for moderate risk as well as high-risk gastrointestinal stromal tumors and really saw no difference in the imatinib-free interval, which was that study's primary endpoint, for high-risk gastrointestinal stromal tumor patients with the two years of imatinib. So we've got sort of two studies that are not saying exactly the same thing, but not answering the exact same question. But certainly that overall survival benefit that you saw in the Scandinavian trial certainly begs that we should probably be treating those patients with high-risk GIST with three years of adjuvant imatinib. It was interesting, though, because now they've started talking about Is the imatinib simply prolonging or simply holding down tumor that will grow once the imatinib is stopped? A little bit of argument with that, just given you do see that overall survival benefit out of the Scandinavian trial. But then the other question is, should we be giving longer than three years of adjuvant imatinib for these high-risk GIST patients? And there's discussions, I think, of studies that will look at longer intervals of imatinib for patients with high-risk GIST. And so this particular woman is coming up in May on her three-year anniversary. So we started the discussion. You know, should you stop the imatinib or should you continue? And she's definitely had a fair number of side effects from the imatinib. She has fatigue. She has nausea. She has to take the imatinib with ice cream to make it tolerable. And she said, You know, she's gained all this weight from the ice cream. Truly, she's probably tolerated imatinib better than a lot of patients that I've seen. But as a side effect question, could we be over-treating somebody who's potentially cured of her gist? We don't know. Will she get more benefit if she continues it longer? We don't know. And so we had a very frank discussion with her about this and saying, you know, you can definitely stop after three years. That's what the data says for right now. And she was walked out by her primary oncologist, and her primary oncologist came back in, and she said that her patient looked at her and said, I'm not stopping the imatinib. So for this particular patient, she does want to continue, but I think it really points to an area where we're not quite sure where the end point is.
1: I was going to say, that was my prediction. I'm kind of curious, did she say to either one of you, what would you do if it were you?
2: She didn't ask us that question. We've had that question asked of us a lot today, but she... She did not. Yeah, Yeah, she she was not.
0: What were you thinking you were going to recommend to her at the three-year point, Dan? Well, I would be somewhat in favor of continuing her until I got more data. She's tolerating it okay. You know, I always worry about the original trial that looked at stopping and then restarting, and some of these people you don't recapture with your new treatment. So I'm not sure. It's kind of like what I was doing with our hormonally positive, node positive breast cancers after five years of whatever hormonal therapy we were giving them. Many of those patients I maintain while I was waiting for, you know, San Antonio next year or ASCO the following year. So I think initially if it comes May, I would be thinking, okay, let's do this for another six months and see what's going on.
1: Yeah, I was kind of reflecting back on a couple of slides that Hal Burstein shows about breast cancer and this, you know, what you were talking about, whether to continue at five years with tamoxifen. And he shows one slide that has a calendar where the lady has circled the day that she's finished her five years, and another picture of a woman who has a T-shirt that says tamoxifen on it. So I guess there are a lot of individualities. It sounds like this lady kind of is sort of in between having a fair amount of problems, but astute enough to know that you know maybe it's helping her. What's going on in terms of systemic therapy beyond imatinib In just Johanna? We were talking before about regorafenib, and that now has become a third player on the scene along with imatinib and sunitinib. It looks like it has quite a bit of efficacy, and you know, maybe more than what we see in colorectal cancer.
2: Yeah, so most definitely there's other options for patients who progress on 400 of imatinib. One can always try to go up to 800 if they tolerate it. It's a very rare patient that can do that. This particular patient might be one that I would think could potentially tolerate 800. There's also sunitinib, which has its place in the second line, and now regorafenib after the randomized phase 3 grid study that also has shown benefit and is now FDA-approved for this setting. You know, interestingly, I've treated patients with colon cancer with regorafenib, and I've treated patients with just with regorafenib. And for some funny reason, patients with just seem to tolerate the regorafenib better. And, you know, you just wonder, is this an effect of the pretreatment patients with colorectal cancer have had, much akin to Dan's point with the earlier discussion about the patients with colorectal cancer, Maybe if they aren't beaten up so much with prior treatment, they would tolerate it better. Certainly, you do see the fatigue primarily with regorafenib in my patients that I've treated with gastrointestinal stromal tumors, but very nice efficacy, and it's always good to have yet another option available for these
1: patients. What about sequencing? Are there any situations, for example, where you would use regorafenib before sunitinib?
2: I don't think that I necessarily would pull regorafenib before sunitinib. One question about sequencing is there's very rarely patients with gastrointestinal stromal tumors that have PDGFR mutations, and these folks tend to be imatinib-resistant. Though One can argue one way or the other, and that might be a setting where I'd think about using one of those VEGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors a little bit earlier on, but those would be the biggest people where I might think about flipping the sequencing You know, one could argue the exon 9 mutations, you know, we've always talked about exon 9 and that the data with 800 milligrams of imatinib looks much better than 400 for those patients. There's also some suggestion out there that the VEGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors may not show a dose difference for the exon 9 mutation patients. So that might be another set of patients that I would think about, though we don't have trial data to tell us that that's the right thing to do.
0: Any concluding thoughts from either one of you about what's happened here today? Well, I find this very helpful. I mean, Joanna was a wonderful guest, a wonderful listener. And I do believe our patients really enjoyed hearing their story. I mean, it's amazing when you take care of a patient over two years, even one year, and you retell their story in front of them, they're always able to say, well, wait, 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 not quite. They're able to remember and recall or forget sometimes Kind of what happens. And I think, you know, certainly in our patients that we struggle with, is this a disease that could come back? Is this a disease that might take my life? When they're doing well, we tend to forget about what it all started to look like. And so I, something like this, even if you just, I mean, today was exceptional, but even if I do it from time to time, I just have timeout talks with my patients and just have them come in and say, you know what, let's go back to when we first met six years ago, and what we talked about. Because we forget sometimes, I forget, I forget. And when my patients forget, gosh, this is a disease that is really kind of life-threatening or potentially life-threatening. And so when you are able to do this in this pretty safe environment, I think it's a wonderful experience for our patients. Any final comment from you, Johanna?
2: I had a fantastic time. I was actually sort of worried coming out here. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna be seeing patients and all, but it was such a different perspective being able to see through the patient's eyes their longitudinal story. Getting to see patients with Dan, I mean, his practice is amazing. They're very on top of things, really give incredible care to their patients, getting to talk with some of his partners about issues that they've been seeing in their practice. So a lot of education for me. And just also, you know, being able to see another oncologist out there just caring so much about their patients and their welfare and quality of life and perspective on treatment. So this has been a true gift.
1: One final question. I could really hear in both of your voices a lot of emotion as you talked about these patients today. And I saw a paper in the JCO recently about burnout in oncologists. I was wondering how both of you take care of yourselves as you negotiate these
0: challenging waters. Dan? I'm very fortunate. I have four partners who we work well together. We somewhat have similar philosophies. And I'm amazed, I'm amazed, just between the four of us, how in a Christian way, but how we carry our patients cross. So the disease is not our disease, but boy, once they walk in the door, I can't tell you how many times people, you just told them they had metastatic pancreatic cancer and they leave saying, geez doc, I feel so much better. And it's, So you do leave a little bit of that sorrow behind in the hands of the oncologist, but not only oncologists. we're very fortunate. We have wonderful nurses, support staff. So it gets put throughout our office, our entire office can be burned out at any one point in time. And it's very important for us in a private practice to acknowledge that, be aware of that, sort of build in pieces to our practice that kind of allow us to relieve each other when we need to be you know, helped out. So there's a burnout and it can hit you physically, emotionally, and but every patient I see, whether they live or they die, man, I just feel i become a better person because a piece of them kind of sticks to me. And I can remember. It's like gone from the charts, but not from the heart. You remember them. And all of a sudden you're smiling like Nicole or you're kind of reacting like Ted. And you say, wow, I really am a different person. So yeah, there's burnout. I think it's a double-edged sword. I think it's about pacing yourself and it's recognizing how much you can do, how much you can take on, and being honest with yourself and constructing a practice that you do that.
1: Johan, you know, I'm curious about your perception. It's always hard to you know, when you know, look at papers that have numbers in them to really kind of get a feel for it. I'm always amazed by how kind of stable most oncologists look on the outside. Any sense for this issue?
2: Well, I mean, I couldn't agree with Dan more. We were having some really great conversations, the two of us, between patients today about how you're an oncologist and how you deal with it and how your patients touch you. I mean, I think he's perfectly right in saying this is a double-edged sword in that we have the greatest honor of being able to meet these patients who have been diagnosed with probably one of the worst things you could ever imagine, And watching how they deal with it and survive through it and helping them do that as well. I mean, I think we're going to talk about a patient that literally brought tears to my eyes today when I met her. But I can see in Dan's eyes the gift that he's been giving just for knowing her and being able to participate in her care. You know, with the two of us knowing that at some point, there's going to be a tragic end to the story. But boy, is there a glorious story while she's still here.
1: I wonder too, you know, in terms of this experience today, you know, normally you're in the middle of it. You're the doc, Johanna. Today, you're kind of looking over Dan's shoulder and whether it, you know, kind of gave you a different perception about what you do.
2: Oh my goodness, yes. We were joking about that a little bit while we were waiting here. As I said, it was so nice to be able to see patients where I wasn't responsible But it was also amazing to watch the relationship that each and every one of them has with Dan. And we saw another one of his partner's patients with his partner. And you see that love and bond between the physician and the patient and what it really means to care. And it was amazing to see that from an outside perspective because so many times we're inside it and we don't hear it and we're trying to think about the next patient we have to move to. And so this experience to me was fantastic because I was able to really absorb that relationship and that bond and sort of bask in it and sit in it while I was there in clinic.